Okay. Um, okay. So I be a little, I guess, a little vulnerable here because I think it will help set the stage for for where we're going this morning. Um, we're moving into a series called Now What? And the idea behind it was that as we move beyond Easter, where is it that God is taking us? Where is it that God is calling us to go in light of the fact that, that we have a risen Lord and Savior? It was very much a forward-thinking sermon series, and I think that we're going to get there eventually. This week, I, um, I, I sat down with that in mind and, and just started kind of going through my normal process, and then just every step along the way just felt like I was hitting a wall. Uh, in a way that I've not felt, and I mean, it happens from time to time, but this was, this was different to the extent that on Friday, which, and I'm typically way done with sermon prep on Friday, on Friday, I deleted everything that I had and started over. Started from scratch. Yeah, people moan, like, what are you in for now, right? Um, I, <laughs> and and, and I, I did it because I just felt like God was trying to communicate with me. He wanted me to go a direction that, that I just wasn't willing to go. Um, and so I say that, that this, this might not be as polished as maybe we're, we normally have on Sunday, but this is genuinely, uh, I just want to walk you through what God is doing in my life. I just want to show you what God is teaching me, and let's see what he does with it. And then next week, we'll, we'll move forward, and it's going to be exciting and awesome, and I'm super excited about it. And so uh, this week, instead of looking forward, we're, we're actually going to, we're going to look back. It's more reflective than um, forward-moving. And to, to do that, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to walk through a story here real quick. So, so the question that, that I was attempting to answer and that we will attempt to answer throughout the series that if the tomb is empty, then, right, dot, 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 where are we supposed to go? And so if the tomb is empty, what's my response? What's our direction? Where are we supposed to go? So in light of that, uh, we, we jump into a story this morning in Luke 24, beginning in 13, that takes place immediately after Jesus walked out of the tomb. So Mary goes to the tomb. She sees that it's empty. She goes back and she tells the others and the 11, hey, something's gone down here. Jesus isn't where he was supposed to be, and so we, we have to kind of figure out what's going on. And so two, two individuals here are going to be walking out of the city, trying to process everything that had happened up until this point. And here's how Luke records it. Now, that same day, so Resurrection Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And so, so two two disciples of Jesus. And so we don't, we don't, we know one of their names. We don't know the other name. Uh, and they're not part of the inner circle of Jesus, but they definitely would have been a part of the larger group of followers that Jesus had had. And so they would have been there. They would have experienced everything that happened kind of during the passion narrative. And, and they're trying to make sense of what they saw, what they experienced, and maybe more importantly, what they are hearing. And they're asking themselves questions like, what in the world just happened? How did we get here? What are we supposed to do now? 
with the weight of the world on their shoulders, like everything that they had kind of been building up to, at this point, like it, it's crumbled. Everything. And you'll, you'll hear that here in their voices, like, like they're, they're hurting, they're depressed, probably angry, confused. And as they're talking and as they're processing, a traveler joins them. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So there's some, some divine intervention here. When Mary didn't recognize Jesus at the tomb, I truly believe it was because she was grieving, she was mourning, she wasn't expecting to see a dead person standing next to her, so she just didn't put two and two together. Here in this text, it's actually God coming before Jesus or, or, or intervening, the Holy Spirit intervening here and creating almost like a, a blinder for these people not to recognize who Jesus is. And so Jesus is going to walk with them, and he's going to have a conversation with them, and they have no idea who they're walking with. Now, there's some theological gold here that we don't have time to dig too deep in, but I just want you to note what's happening here. We think about interactions and encounters with Jesus. I look for the Damascus Road type encounters in my life. And so if you don't know what that is, when Paul or Saul was traveling before he was a Christian— he encountered Jesus in a way that left no doubt who he was meeting with, and he was forever changed. Like, that's what I desire in my life. Here in the text, we're seeing a similar encounter with an entirely different approach. This time, in this situation, Jesus is walking beside two individuals, and he's going to pour into them, and they have no idea who they're walking with. There, there's beauty in that for me, and knowing that, yeah, Jesus can absolutely wreck my world and, and meet me in a, in a real and like no doubt type of place, but there's also a subtle side to our Savior who sometimes journeys with us when we don't have any idea that he's with us. And so they're, they're walking. They don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus asked them in verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. He says, guys, it looks like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. What are you talking about? One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Are you living under a rock? How could you possibly not know what we're talking about? It's all anybody's talking about. Like the entire town. Like, like that's like, like what, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Like, I, I, I don't understand. Like, like, where did you come from to not know what has happened? Jesus plays along. He, he says, what things? He says. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and in all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That their idea of who the Messiah was or was going to be at this point is skewed. They viewed Jesus as a political rescuer. They viewed Jesus, the Messiah, as someone who would come in and set everything right. So at this point, Israel is under immense Roman persecution Everything is, is, is kind of flipped upside down. And so when they thought about the Messiah, they thought about the Messiah coming and just, just putting them in their place. 
elevating the nation of Israel to a place of prominence once again. That's what they had hoped for. And as they heard Jesus preach, I guess they, they didn't quite understand his message because after the crucifixion, they still thought, well, man, we thought that he was going to write the wrong, but I guess, I guess, I guess he, he's not going to. And what's, what is more, they said, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us what they had, that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. There's, there's doubt in their voice here. They're not proclaiming the risen Savior. That They're saying that that's the information that we have. But again, they're trying to figure it all out. And as they're talking, there's this, this indication in the text that Jesus had, he had had enough. Verse 23, he said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter in his glory? Verse 27, this is, this is where we're going to sit today. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. Let me read it again. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. So we, t we talked last week that, that everything that we are, foundationally from um, followers of Christ, sits and rests in the reality of the empty tomb. So if Jesus doesn't walk out of the tomb, th then he's not Lord. He, he's a crazy person who thought he was someone who he wasn't, or he was a liar. So someone who told people that he was someone that he knew he wasn't. But if the tomb is empty, then all of a sudden we have confirmation once and for all that he was in fact King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we begin to see everything through the lens of the empty tomb. And so it serves almost like glasses would for for people who, who can't see real well. And so it, I imagine that, that if you have poor vision, things are, are fuzzy and a little bit blurry, some of us worse than others. But when you put glasses on, it sharpens everything you see. And all of a sudden you see things that weren't, or that were there, but you couldn't recognize before. That's what the empty tomb does for us. And so when we, when we acknowledge that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross and rose again, all of a sudden we can look back into Scripture and we begin to see Jesus' fingerprints on almost every single page. One author wrote, every page of Scripture, Jesus is either pointed to, patterned towards, or present in. It's a bold statement. Every page of Scripture, not New Testament, every page, right here, from, from Genesis to Revelation, that every page either patterns towards Jesus, it points towards Jesus, or he is actually there. It's actually Jesus that we're reading about. And so I began to, to work through some questions. 
right? Like starting, starting here. If the tomb is empty, then. So, so what does it mean? What are we supposed to do? And I read the verse that, that Jesus, starting with Moses and through the prophets, began to connect the dots. And I, I had a moment that, like, I, man, I, I, wonder, I wonder what he was talking about. I wonder what he told those guys. I wonder what specific story he said. This is one of those instances, and Luke is typically really thorough in his writing. Uh, he's a physician, and so he has details. He's methodical in how he writes. But here in the text, he actually just kind of, he skims over what I would argue is the most important part of this story. And so I began to dig, right? You research and you, you Google, you get on the Bible study software, you open up commentaries, and, and there's lots of opinions as to what he may or may not, say, may, may or may not have said, but, but the consensus is that there probably are some stories in the Old Testament that he used to show that he was either present, that it was either pointing towards him, or that it was patterning towards the gospel. And so some examples might be when Jesus, or excuse me, when it says the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning, so in the garden before sin. Scholars say, well, that, maybe, maybe that's Jesus. You know the story of Abraham, and you don't have to be a forensic scientist to see the, the, the pattern of Jesus Christ and, and the example of Abraham and Isaac, where this father was, was told to sacrifice his one and only son. The one and only son that actually everything that God had promised hinged on that person, and God said, I need you to lay him down before me. Again, you see Jesus in that story over and over and over again. Or how about the story of the nation of Israel being rescued out of Egypt? that God redeemed his people, that he saved them. That pattern's like the gospel, if you ask me. And so, so again, if, if the tomb is empty, taking into account what Jesus said, if the tomb is empty, then it says that, that, that in my head, then Jesus then is, has always been. Jesus has been. Which, which, okay, not groundbreaking here, I don't think, theologically speaking. You should know that. But, but, but I begin to piece this together. And again, not, not Jesus is a has-been. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misquote me. Is that Jesus has been. It means he's always been around. He always was. And we know that from other places in the text. John explicitly wrote, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Very important to us theologically. And so, so I begin to dig deeper. Okay, so, so if Jesus has always been, then, then, then at what point does this story play out for us? At what point is he revealed to us? At what point in our text do we begin to notice or should I begin to look for his fingerprints? And then if, if Jesus has been, then perhaps this always was. So, so if Jesus has been, perhaps this always was. So, so what is this? What we're doing here. Our faith. Everything that we believe and all that we are, like, like what if what if this was always a part of God's plan? Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. The moment sin entered the world, and, and hang with me here, I, I promise I'll connect the dots. This is what God said to the serpent, right, the deceiver. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. 
and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, so, so woman's offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his healed. I've read that verse over and over and over again. That's not new to me, but when you start to look at it through the lens of the empty tomb, it begins to take a little bit of a different tone. It looks a little bit different to me. When we talk about the the seed, the offspring of woman is going to crush the head of Satan, of the enemy. And it says that, oh, he's going to be wounded while he's doing that. People much smarter than me say this is the first proclamation of the gospel. It's the first time in scripture that, that, that God says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And so, so I asked the question then, at what point did God know? It would take us an eternity to comprehend all of the characteristics of the God, of our God. Not a God, our God. He's infinite. Which means if it takes all of eternity that that we can never possibly understand all that he is. But we do know certain characteristics about him that help us at least process just how big he is. We we know that he's he's all powerful and he's all present and he's all knowing. God is, is, is the most powerful He's everywhere at all times and he knows everything about everything and he's known everything about everything for all eternity. So the question then is at what point, at what point did he know? Isaiah said that, that his understanding, God's understanding, no one can fathom. When we look at, when I look at times at the cross and the resurrection, it's easy to think of it as a contingency plan, almost like a plan B. Like, okay, everything's created, everything was good, and Eve messes up, and so, so God has to gather everybody in the war room, and they break the glass, and they pull out the contingency plan that is the gospel man, they screwed this up. How are we going to make this right? Oh, I have an idea. Let's send Jesus to die in their place. Plan B. But I would suggest to you that if God knows everything about everything for all time, then he's known about this always. That this didn't surprise him. That that this didn't shock him that he knew that at some point man was going to turn their back on him. He knew that Eve was going to slip and mess up. He knew that sin was going to enter the world. He knew that there was going to then be a a separation between him and humanity. And he knew this before anything was created. So so before, before there were the heavens and the earth, God knew But before he said, let there be light, he knew. Before he created the trees and the plants and the animals and he he separated the ocean and the land, before all of that, he knew this is exactly what was going to happen. And, And he created us anyway. 
he knew what was going to be required for us to have a relationship with him. And he still breathed life into Adam. He knew that I was going to be broken, that you were going to be broken, that we were going to be flawed and helpless and hopeless, and yet he said they're worth it. I want to be in a relationship with them. So we, we look at Easter as, as, this, as maybe the, the best representation of God's love for us, and, and it, it, it is, right? Like, I don't want to argue that. I think sometimes we, we miss or we overlook the fact that, that actually God's been demonstrating that love for us all along. That, that before anything was anything, that, that he, he chose to love us. That, that he, he still chose to go down the path that he did, knowing everything that was going to happen and how difficult it would be and how much that we were going to mess it up. And, and he said they're worth it. I like to focus on, on the, the Jesus who is and is to come. Because the Jesus who is, like, that, that's real time for me, and I can connect and I can relate. And the Jesus who is to come, like, I can get excited about that and I can anticipate that and I can plan and prepare all those things for it. But I forget at times that, that Jesus also is the one who was, was, and is, and is to come. And that was part, before any of this was anything, again, is, is that first time that we begin to see just how valuable we are, just how important you are. One of Satan's greatest lies that he tells us is that you aren't valuable, that you aren't worth it. I've, um, I've never been a guy who's been picked first much in my life. The kickball field at recess, like I, I wasn't the last guy, but I certainly wasn't the first. At the height of my basketball career, which was in eighth grade, it's a short career, I still had dreams and aspirations for playing for the University of Kentucky. Like I thought, like despite my, my age, or my age, my, my size and my lack of speed and the, the fact that I really couldn't shoot or handle the ball, that somehow I would be able to, to, to make it and play for the University of Kentucky. And so I, I put a lot, of, a lot of driveway time, and I had this idea that I was going to try out for summer ball. So, so it's the AAU Summer League, and, and the way that our town did it is they would... Um, they would bring all of the kids, all of the boys our age from the region together for one tryout, and then they would divide teams up from there. And, and so they would be like the, the top team where they pulled like the best kids from every town. They would all play together, which was the all-star team kind of. They would do the traveling, and they would be really competitive. And then there would be each town then in the region would have separate teams where the guys that were left over that weren't picked from the first team got to play with people that they lived around. And so I, I had in my head, well, I, yeah, probably unless, you know, something insane happens, I, I certainly won't make that first team. But, but yeah, I'll, I'll just play with the guys that I'm friends with at school. That should be fun. It'll help improve my skill set. And so we go through tryouts, and, and I, I, I did my thing, um, and I thought it was pretty good, right? I thought I had kind of demonstrated my skill set and my ability, and 
uh, they posted the teams on the wall, and, and sure enough, the first team, that all-star team, uh, my name wasn't there, okay? And so I move on, and, and it, looking at kind of our local team, and I'm going down, <laughs> and I'm seeing names that I know, but not my name, and, and it wasn't there. And, and I just kind of perplexed, I looked at the other team for Farmington, the, the town I grew up in, and, and my name wasn't there either. And, and I moved all the way down kind of the end of the bulletin board, and there was just this, this list that no one really knew what it meant, and, and my name was on it. And so, so we began to ask questions like, well, this is the group of people that were left over. <laughs> so, so you had the best of the best, the average team from each town, and then like the worst of the worst, that was me. And we were bad. Like, like, like I, I think I led the team in scoring one game, which like should have been our first indication that we weren't going to win most games. Like, if I'm who they're depending on, like, it, it's not going to be good. And yeah, we, we were horrible. And, and you begin to kind of evaluate, especially growing up in that time, like, my worth based on things like that. And then moving on in life, like, like jobs, I've never been the guy that's really been recruited after. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll earn my way and, and, and I'll do things, but I'm not always the first... I'm never the first option, and I'm okay with that. This is not a pity party for me. I'm just trying to make an illustration here that I'm not someone who typically gets picked first. And then I read this. I read this story, and I rewind all the way back to the beginning, and I see this definition of God's love for us and for the first and maybe the only time in my life, I have this appreciation that, man, he picked me first. Like, that's pretty cool. That the creator of the world, who had foresight to know just how flawed I would be, says, you're worth it that the God of the universe knowing that I would stumble and fall said I choose you one of the greatest lies that Satan tells us is that we aren't valuable enough that we aren't worth it that we aren't worthy and this world is really good at affirming that. But we pause as, as we begin to, to process how we move forward. Like, now what? And for me, and this was the moment, this was the moment that, that changed, I think, the trajectory of the sermon. For me, it was hearing the whisper in my ear from God that says the world's wrong. You are worth it. You are the most valuable thing ever. And I would go to any lengths to be with you. This isn't a surprise. This didn't catch me off guard. I knew how this would play out. And I created you anyway. Now that you know your value, Aaron, Church, 
Let's take it and show the world what you can do with it. Watch how I build my kingdom through that value. Watch what I do. We're going to play that out next week. I would encourage you to come back as we walk through, continue on this journey of, of now what? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for just the opportunity that we get to gather together today. What, what, a, what a joy and what a pleasure it is to be able to worship with this group. God, I, I believe there is someone here in this room who is questioning their value, who is questioning their worth, who is believing the lies that Satan is telling them that they, that they aren't worthy. Father, may they have an encounter with you today, right now, this week, like I did. May, may they fully understand and appreciate just how worthy, just how valuable they are. Father, I thank you for, for not giving up on us in the beginning. And I thank you for, for your continued love and support. And that through our relationship with Jesus Christ, because of our faith in what he did, our faith in, our, in his atoning work on the cross and his triumphant resurrection, that we may be in communion with you. And so, so if, if, help us lean into that. Help us step deeper into that relationship as we leave this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray.